0: Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, February 5th, another exciting championship weekend in the pro tennis world, now officially in the books, there were so many outstanding performances for me to highlight on today's show. And of course, I will try to do exactly that. But I also want to highlight the performers who I just think at this point, five weeks of tennis into the season, we can say clearly, hey, he, hey, she has brought his or her Best tennis to start the new year. And certainly on today's show, again, I want to highlight those performers in particular. For me, it starts with 24 year old American Patrick Kipson, who last season earned his first two challenger titles of his career. Well, now he can add a third trophy to his mantle as he takes home the title in Cleveland, a thrilling three set victory over Ethan Quinn in Sunday's final. And look, I'm still unsure what Patrick Kipson's ceiling is moving forward. 24 years old, is he going to have a massive sort of leap that suddenly propels him into the top 50, top 25 conversation? I don't know if that's who he is going to be moving forward. I certainly believe he's going to be a top 100 player by the end of this year. The level I saw from him, the base level in particular, it never dipped below good in any of the sets he played, in any of his performances. Again, him losing that first set in Sunday's final had everything to do with his opponent 19 year old Ethan Quinn who showed why he is one of the top ranked teenagers we have right now in the men's rankings again was a thrilling championship weekend in Cleveland I got to sit courtside for quarterfinals semifinals and the final round of singles and doubles play I want to offer my final reflections on that event for all of you listeners here on today's show I also though of course have to look beyond what I got to see in person in Cleveland I've got to use this uh, majority of my Monday to catch up on tennis I might have otherwise missed. And there are certainly, again, some tour-level performances we have to discuss. I will continue to pound my fist on the desk and make the claim that Elena Ostapenko is playing the best tennis of her career. For God's sake, she has now won two titles here in 2024 in singles, This is the first time since her breakout 2017 campaign where she has won multiple titles within the course of the same season, and we are only five weeks in to this season. To watch her just overwhelm Alexandrova in the final, to watch her overwhelm everyone that she faced throughout the course of the week, paths in the semis, barrage in the quarters. She's moving well. She's playing confidently. We know what Yelena Ostapenko's ceiling can be. She was always a player where it was the floor in question. Well, I will tell you what... That floor is looking really good. Real dangerous here. To start 2024, Ostapenko again another title run. We want to break down the mechanics of it, talk about again the semifinalist Vekic Pavs, and who else may have shined at that 500 level women's event and then we got to talk about a maiden title run. Obviously, here at Cracked Rackets given our ties to the College Tennis World, we have been so fortunate to follow Diana Schneider so closely over the course of these last 15, 16, 17 months and We've gotten a front row seat to her ascension into the top 100 of the WTA rankings. Now, this is a player who, after Australia, had fallen just outside of that top 100. Well, she ain't got to worry about that for the rest of this season as Lady Di or Di Schnei, whatever you want to refer her to her as. She needs to be referred to as top 100 player and WTA title winner as well. A maiden title run for the teenager in Joaquin oh my goodness, did her forehand look dangerous. And I do want to offer a quick plug here at the start. All of you listeners should be reading all things written off the desk of our dear friend Jeff Sackman over at Tennis Abstract. He wrote a particular blog about the potency of the Diana Schneider cross-court forehand. I'm not going to read it for you listeners or dive into the statistics excuse me, the statistics that he offers. I'm not going to step on that piece. Go read it for yourself, but you can go tennisabstract.com, find it today. I do want to offer my thoughts on what I saw from Diana Schneider and, of course, break down everything else we saw in Hua Hin, break down the action in Montpellier. Talk about, again, outstanding performances. It's the first time in ATP tour history. We saw a player win a tour level title while dropping the first set in every single match that he played. Of course, it's fitting that the first player to accomplish that is a guy in Sasha Bublik, who you never know what the ceiling, what the floor is going to look like within the course of any given match, maybe within the course of any given game service-wise returning or other that he plays. And yet, Something is brewing right now for Bublik to start his season. Semifinal week one, now a title here in week number five. Sasha Bublik's brought his best in what was again a really fun tour-level event for the men. What was our semifinalists were Bublik, F.A.A. Chorich, and Runa. I mean, if that's not going to get you excited as a tennis fan, I don't know what will. So in case you missed out on any of those many storylines we saw emerge over the course of championship weekend, rest assured, our dear listeners want to catch you up on all of them here on today's podcast. Again, Cleveland challenger, Linz, Joaquin, Montpellier as well. I do want to point out if you want to hear thoughts on some of the other challengers we saw this weekend, we had. Two top two seeds doing battles in finals. I believe Rodiana beating Nakashima. I think second seeded Carabelli ended up beating Federico Coria in the clay court challenger event we had. Our dear friend Damien Kust breaks it all down on Monday's edition of the Great Shot podcast feed. So make sure you go check out that show. Of course, I do want to offer my thoughts on Cleveland, but I'll save the other three for him over on the Great Shot podcast feed, where, by the way, this week, we're talking all things college tennis world. It's a busy week. It's the best month, in my opinion, of the college tennis season. We've got the Division One ITA Women's National Indoor Championships coming up Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Coverage from first ball to last, that's what that's called, will be available on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. That starts Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern. Again, that will be the starting point for each of our broadcasting sessions on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday. Then, of course, on Monday, we'll have the championship match for all of you tennis fans. Then the next week, we head to New York for the Division I Men's National Indoor Championships. Again, that will be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday, Monday coverage that will begin 9 a.m. Eastern time to ensure that you don't miss out on any of our coverage. Make sure you're subscribed to our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. And as always, if you want to hear more about everything happening in the college tennis world, make sure you check out that Great Shot podcast feed. Go subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating. Leave us a review as well about what you like, don't like, or would like to hear more of perhaps on our Crack Rackets podcast. Again, a shout out to all of you listeners who make it possible for us to have opportunities like broadcasting and shining a spotlight on one of the best college events we have throughout the course of any given season. Again, a national champion will be named, so make sure you tune in this Friday through Monday and then next Friday through Monday as well for all of our coverage. Of course, a shout out here on this show as well to the dear, uh, support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. All right, all that said, let's get into the many outstanding performances we saw throughout the course of a busy championship weekend in the pro tennis world. I want to start with, of course, what I got to see up close in person, courtside for the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals at this year's Cleveland Challenger, where I had the opportunity to once again serve as MC. Again, a massive thank you to the entire top-notch management team, Sam Duvall, Alex Guthrie, everyone who helps put together what is all. Always a first-class event. They've done that for six years. They're going to have their fourth year now of the WTA 250 event at the end of August. And there's a reason they continue to be trusted with hosting and managing these events. They're the best in the business. So grateful for them offering us that opportunity. So grateful, of course, as well to have the opportunity to continue to work with them moving forward. I was also immensely grateful to be courtside for what was an outstanding weekend of tennis. And this event always Falls at such a fascinating time in the calendar. First week post-Australian Open, only one tour-level event. And, you know, you got to pick. Schedule-wise, where do I want to play? Do I stay in Europe, try to go play Rotterdam, try to play some of those other indoor hardcore 250 events that are in France or elsewhere? Do you go down to South America as an ATP player, go play those South American ATP 250s on the clay, or do you head to North America, play Dallas, play Delray Beach, maybe go play Acapulco before the start of Indian Wells and Miami? The point being, if you make that North American trek oftentimes you say, you know what? I'm going to stop in Cleveland first. Why not? Get some matches under my belt. Have some success. It's always a high-quality field, and certainly this year was no exception. I thought we saw a top 100-level match in our final, what was ultimately a 4-6, 6-3, 6-2 victory for 24-year-old Patrick Kipson, and As I alluded to earlier, third challenger title for Patrick Kipson. All three of them have now come in the last 52 weeks. With this victory for Kipson, he's up to a new career high of number 153. Now, I need to watch him play more top 100 players to know what his ceiling is moving forward. And truth be told, you know, you look for him in his career. He's three and six against the top 100 you look for him over the last 52 weeks, 3 and 4, and I saw him beat a top 100 player in the semifinals a 6-3, 7-6 victory over James Duckworth. I saw him stare down what was certainly a top 100 arsenal of weapons in the serve, forehand combination, the relentless aggression that 19-year-old Ethan Quinn played with right out of the gates in their final on Sunday. And yet again, it was the steadiness of Patrick Kipps. And I apologize, this is not the most detailed or nuanced answer, but the 24-year-old is just good at everything. Hits his spots well on the serve, 6'3", 6'4", pretty muscular, moves well, isn't stiff in and out of his corners either. Good depth on every ground stroke, good action on the forehand, good drive on the backhand, can get outside the ball, find the angle cross-court. Our dear friend Alex Banschilla uh, tweeted out an instance of his servant volley where he had this undercut backhand drop shot volley off the backhand that displayed... More than adequate touch and just, again, comfortable comfortable knocking off the overhead, comfortable holding his ground on the baseline, comfortable in his technique to extend through the return, drive that return of serve, punish, second serves that hang short. He was good at everything and physically he was just up for the test in a way that I, unfortunately Ethan Quinn's legs kind of gave out as that final went on and I say unfortunately because There was really high quality tennis through the first hour and a half, hour forty five minutes of this one. Quinn displaying an exceptional combination of, again, first serve plus one prowess as well as an ability to make Kipson uncomfortable. I I don't want to say defensively because Quinn is still not the greatest mover, and that is one of the takeaways for the nineteen year old. And it's why I'm so encouraged because he is more than. Acceptable as an athlete. Like he will get fluid. He will continue to gain more strength. His ability to anticipate his feel for how things progress and then the pace he's able to generate. The athleticism is clearly there. The 19-year-old's just also very clearly growing into his body still. Sometimes he reaches maybe when he could have afforded to take an extra step, but again, you're growing into your body. You're not exactly sure how many steps it even is going to take you to get in and out of one corner, or when you're on the full sprint, how can you recover best? I think Quinn is very explosive first step when particularly moving into the court, and that's why I'm not worried about his lateral movement moving forward. It reminds me not quite of a young sinner, But in the young Tsitsipas model, where you just kind of saw the strength and you're like, okay, movement will not be the issue for Ethan Quinn moving forward. You also saw the way you saw with Tsitsipas, just the pace they were able to, they're able to both generate with the serve, with the forehand, the momentum always moving forward. I mean, again, Quinn was just snapping. His forehand was the biggest weapon on the court, period, throughout the course of that match. And again how well he was uh, generating 120 pace on the serve plus easy generating free points for himself. I know there were some breaks of serve early. I think Quinn got broken right out of the gate before getting the break back. Hits an outstanding lob on his break on his way to breaking late in that first. And then again, ultimately t- uh, able to close it out six, four, but Kipson just kept on coming and you look for Patrick Kipson all week long you know again first serve win percentage he's over 75 uh 73 percent excuse me in each of his matches as you should be in indoor hard court tennis he was never broken more than twice in any of his matches broken twice again by Ethan Quinn but both of those breaks came in the opening set of that match and so in four of the five oh excuse me in six of the last seven sets he played this week against Nava, Duckworth, and Quinn, who, by the way, indoor hard courts. Nava, massive weapons. Duckworth, his serve forehand, massive weapons. Quinn, his serve forehand, massive weapons. Staring down the barrel of three players who I think have legitimate top 100 weapons right now, particularly on an indoor hardcourt surface, it was the steadiness and the well-rounded nature of Patrick Kipson's game that won out. And again, you look for Kipson, it's the most successful stretch of his career by far. 44 and 22 overall, It's a beautiful example for me to provide to you listeners because you know one of my rules. Let's say it together. The two-thirds rule. You're winning two-thirds of your matches. You are going to continue to steadily progress up the rankings. That's why he's into the top 160 for the first time. He's now made eight different quarterfinals in the last 52 weeks of play. He's 8-0 in all of those quarterfinals. He's made three finals. He's 3-0 in those finals now as well. We've seen him play in the main draw of what two of the last or or three of the last four slams or whatever it may be two of the last two of the last four excuse me slams. We've seen him now play in. You know, he was damn near on the edge of not knocking out Rusevori, but certainly forcing a third set against him up a four one in that fifth uh, forcing a fifth set excuse me up four one in that fourth set breaker. I got to talk to Pat about that and how he felt about his level and what was fascinating is and I actually. This does kind of resonate with me. I asked Pat, you know, man, you were just so solid all week long. Like You were playing really well. And he goes, you know, I don't actually think I was playing my best tennis this week. He goes, don't get me wrong. I think I served really well. And I that was certainly the takeaway because, again, he wasn't broken in six out of his last seven sets. He goes, I think I served really well. And when you're holding serve, you can just keep pace. He goes, but I wasn't extending through my forehand as much as I would have liked. Or I felt like I left a few backhands lined on the table just explaining all these different things to me. And that's why he remains so fascinating to me, because I get what he said. His forehand wasn't bigger than Quinn's. It wasn't bigger than Navas. It wasn't bigger than Duckworth's. His backhand certainly was able to generate opportunities for him to move forward behind, and he never made mistakes, you know, never more than two mistakes in a row on either wing, really, throughout the course of the weekend. But he wasn't dominating with either of his wings. The way His size, his weapons, sort of indicate maybe he could. If he's swinging out a little bit more aggressively, I don't know. He's strong. He's lean. Like, moves pretty well. I was really impressed with what I saw by Patrick Kipson throughout his run to the title in Cleveland. And remember, this is a guy who was the for- a former Kalamazoo champion, which is the premier U.S. junior boys event. A guy who was the guy in his class of peers. A guy who went to school early in college. Was an All-American his first season at Texas A&M. You know, played above a guy in Arthur Rinderkinesh, by the way, that year. Who has obviously been a top 100 player now for much of the last two and a half years. Back in those days, Rinderkinesh was number two. And Kipson was playing number one. Which speaks to, again, what his level has always been. You look for Patrick Kipson now. Again, since what? We'll go since his run. The start of the Australian Open Wildcard Challenge, which of course is something the USTA offers over the course of four weeks, whoever can accumulate the most points, uh, ultimately getting a wild card into the Australian Open main draw via the USTA. Since the start of that challenge, Kipson now fifteen and five overall. He's holding ninety-one point three percent of the time. Now it's all been indoor hardcore matches or the Australian Open, but 44 and 22 overall over his last 52 weeks. He's holding 84.2% of the time, breaking serve 25% of the time. Neither of those metrics are elite of the elite. They are both very good, if not good of the good. Like, I just, I'm so fascinated by the 24-year-old moving forward because I don't know what that ceiling is, but he's a guy who can certainly do a little bit of everything, and I certainly now expect to see him in the top 100 to end this 2024 season. I think Ethan Quinn could certainly do that as well. Again, it's much like his would-be Georgia teammate Alex Mickelson. Quinn's still very much growing into his body, and yet the one thing that's unequivocal is his ability to play tennis. And he talked about in our discussions how he's been working on developing his slice work in particular on quicker surface, his need to develop the block return, and oh my god, In particular, in Quinn's semifinal match against Dennis Kudla, his ability to keep the block slice return or just his backhand slice in general so low and just knife it Uh, particularly keep that ball low, get it on Kudla quick. Kudla just didn't have any time to be aggressive. Kudla didn't have the opportunity to manufacture any pace or attacking windows with his backhand because that ball was on him so low and so quick. And it was so funny. There was a point where there was a long backhand slice exchange where Ethan was just knifing a few. And Kudla ultimately won the point because Quinn missed one in the net. But I, I immediately from my corporate side position looked at Ethan Quinn's coach to see what his reaction to Ethan losing that point would be because I'm telling you the first five slices Ethan hit in that rally were just like jaw droppingly like what? Like since when have you had this in your bag? And his coach immediately claps and looks at him with a fist pump as if to say, That's the point we want to play. You did that exactly right. And so when we went to dinner the night before the final, I said, Hey, there I just want you to know like have you been working on the backhand slice? Like, is that something because they were knifed and there's this one point in particular where you actually lost the point, but you hit like five in a row, and his coach literally goes, Alex, I want to stop you there. He goes, We literally talked about that point immediately after the match, and I go, Ethan, that was the point. Like, that's what we've been trying to build. And Ethan was like, Yeah, that I'm hitting it really well this week. It's something I knew I had to develop given. People won't remember this, but sorry, I'm nerding out here for all of you listeners. Ethan was really bad. He started last season, ultimately, NCAA singles champion, but he was like five and six at one point during his freshman season playing that number one singles position, and all of those matches were on indoor courts. The moment we moved outside, Ethan was exceptional because he has a little bit more time to get into that backhand backswing and, again... God, does he accelerate through that forehand with just such pace, such thunder. That ball is so heavy, and the weight of that shot, so tremendous. He had to find an adjustment on the quicker surface, and that he found it so quickly. It speaks to his talent. It speaks to his work ethic. It speaks to his upside. Again, Ethan Quinn now inside the top 300 for the first time in his career, up to number 288, first career challenger final. The big thing is he has nothing. Absolutely nothing to defend between now and the start of June. Zero points. Everything he plays is just fresh additions to his ranking. And now that he's top 300, everything he's going to be playing is challenger level or further. And of course, EQ's got a wild card into Dallas this week where he's going to face off against a top 100 player, former another former college All-American and former UNC All-American, Rinki Hijikata. The runway is there points-wise the ceiling is there for Quinn game style-wise, weapons-wise. Physically, it's just, again, he's a 19-year-old kid, and you're saying, hey, when he gets a little stronger, a little quicker, boy, is he going to just be able to continue to impose himself so successfully. And again, that was a really good run for Ethan Quinn. First challenger final of his career. Ultimately, though, it's the steadiness of Kipson. There's a physicality, a consistency you have to have. He had it. Quinn was just short of it, but again, as he gets a little bit more fluid in and out of those corners, look out because the weapons are unequivocal. In terms of my most impressive performances or final takeaways from Cleveland, top-notch management and Patrick Kipps and my most impressive performers, the highest single level I saw from any player was what I saw from Emilio Nava through his first... His his straight set win in the quarterfinals and then his first set of tennis against Patrick Kipson. He was imposing himself with a consistency and a weaponry and a consistency of weaponry that was top 50 caliber. And how well he was moving, again, the heaviness of his ground stroke, the heaviness of his serve – the size, combination, the pedigree. It's just, it just feels like it was all falling into place for him. Obviously, Kipson able to flip the script, keep the course, a uh, call he didn't like goes against him early in set number three, kind of gets in his head. Kipson pulls away from there. But I thought Nava's ceiling was the single highest ceiling I saw throughout the course of the week. Top one, I mean, again, uh, last thought, I guess. Given the retirement's, of Dennis, uh, excuse me, given the fact that Jack Sock, now off playing pickleball, John Isner, now off retired, Sam Querrey, off doing whatever. And then I don't think this is breaking news, but just a little note for all of you listeners that, and it's been pretty well confirmed across the board, Steve Johnson, this will be his last season. I believe he's retiring at Indian Wells. that had be going around tennis circles, so I don't think that's particularly new, but Who's the elder statesman right now in American men's tennis? Like, who is that person? Is it Dennis Kudla, who made the semifinals here at this Cleveland Challenger, has certainly had some success at the North American events of late, but isn't a top 100 player, at least currently, and yet he's always on the bench at United Cup. I know how fondly just about every player thinks of Dennis, a fantastic human being who we've been so fortunate to work with here over the years. Again... Who's the elder statesman? Is it Kudla? Is it Rajiv Ram, who was a top 100 singles player and has been the number one doubles player in the world as recently as last year? Like, is it Rajiv, who's part of the Davis Cup team? But again, do we see him enough week in, week out at these events that we're thinking about him as that elder statesman? Does it just have to be one of the retired people? Maybe the O'Brien brother still, or maybe it's still Isner. Like obviously Fritz, Tiafoe, all these guys—they're not elder, uh, old enough to be the elder statesman yet. I guess that was my thinking as I was watching this challenger event in Cleveland, seeing guys like Kudla, Sandgren, and again all these players. It's just like who's who's the elder statesman now? Who's the guy—the the voice, uh, the the veteran voice that we all turn to from the American men's side of things and. You know, again, I guess I'll leave that as a question for all of you listeners to ponder. But more broadly, again, an exceptional experience for me in Cleveland. And over the years, success in Cleveland has portend, uh, has led to success elsewhere. I'm just thinking top of my head. Cressy wins the title, has the best college season of his career, goes on to crack the top 100. I got to see streaker Nishioka play in a final, obviously streaker now, a couple of next gen finals appearance. Nishioka, after playing that final, a top 50 resurgence. I got to see Ebing Wu make a final, Wu Ebing, excuse me, make a final or win the title. I think he won the title here in Cleveland, and then he went on to win the title in Dallas the very next week. You know, Alex Kowasevich wins it last year. Now he's a top 100 player. I think Quinn and Kipson, it's it's the Biggest double-edged blade is we get to see them on the rise in Cleveland, and then hopefully they never have to see us again because they're off playing 250 events. They're in France getting ready for the 500 in Rotterdam, or, you know, again, they're like, you know what? I made the second week of the Australian Open, or I won a couple of matches in Australia, and I'm going to take this period as a mini training block, get reset, go play Dallas, which of course will be a 500-level event next season. Anyways, outstanding experience in Cleveland. Immensely grateful. A shout-out. Thank you, as always, to our friends at Top Notch Management for allowing us that opportunity to cover uh, some of that action. With that said, though, let's now look to the tour-level results we saw over the course of the weekend, and I want to start with a player who certainly I feel like I've been banging the table saying, this player— is playing the best tennis of her career, even if her best accomplishment came over a half decade ago. Of course, I am referring to Yelena Ostapenko, who wins her second title of this 2024 season in Linz Ostapenko after being pushed to the brink in her opening round match over Clara Tawson, dominant in her next three match. Not only does she win them all in straight sets, she drops 13 games across six sets, broken just once, and it was against Jody Barrage, not Anastasia Pavlochenkova or Ekaterina Alexandrova. Ostapenko, the winner of the title in Linz with her run now. Ostapenko currently sitting at number 11 in the rankings, but she's both separated herself from Barbara Krachikova, the 12th place Krachikova, now 400 points behind Ostapenko. Ostapenko has also narrowed the gap. She's within four, uh, excuse me, 300 points of the number seven spot in the rankings. And again, it's a second title run. For Astapenko, now she's thirteen and two overall to start this twenty twenty two season. She's fifty. Uh, excuse me. She's forty five and twenty one overall now in her last fifty two weeks. Very comparable to the run of forty five and twenty one. Very comparable. Straight up. She went forty-five and twenty-one in twenty seventeen. She is now forty-five and twenty-one over her last fifty-two weeks. And I'll just do the comparison for all of you right now. I understand her twenty seventeen run had her win the twenty seventeen French Open, and that single title is more significant than any title she has won over her last fifty-two weeks. But again, let's just do the comparison. Ostapenko twenty seventeen. Uh, 50, uh excuse me, what did I say the record was? 45 and 21 overall, 50 and 21 overall if you include the Davis Cup, so I suppose that, is a piece there worth noting. Um, seven and two, she made nine total quarterfinals overall. She made three different finals where she won two different titles. You look for her against top 20 opponents that season. Ostapanko, seven and nine. During this stretch, again, how does the nine quarterfinals from that season compare? Well, she's made eight quarterfinals over her last 52 weeks. She's now also made three finals, and she has three titles as opposed to the two from 2017. But again, neither of them were the French Open. The big thing, of course, during, against top 20 opponents, six and eight, uh, excuse me, seven and nine in 2017. She's nine and nine. Over her last 52 weeks, you want to go more broadly than that? Just compare the numbers. 2017, Ostapenko held serve 60.3% of the time. Broke serve 45.1% of the time, but perhaps more broadly, total points won her percentage. She won 51.3, uh, total percent of the points won. You look for her over her last 52 weeks. The hold percentage, significantly higher. She is holding 704 Percent of the time over her last 52 weeks the break percentage a little bit lower but not by much she's breaking 40.1 percent of the time during that stretch and then again total points one during this stretch of time it's just better she's winning over 52 percent she's winning 52.6 percent of her points over the last 52 weeks that's the highest percentage for her over any 52 week stretch in her career she's also fit as a fiddle She's sliding into shots. She's tracking down drop shots and if she gets her hands on the ball, you're just not beating her in the point. She's hitting the return of serve so cleanly right now. She's landing her first serve at a rate higher than she ever has. Again, as I alluded to those statistics earlier, you look for Ostapenko. She's making 60% of her first serves to start the season. It's the first time in her career she's ever been over 60%. Uh, of course, her career average 56.1 and Look, when she lands a first serve, she gets a first strike. When she has a first strike, she's just not missing it right now. Do I need to say it again? Over her final six sets at this event, she dropped a total of 13 games. She's playing dominant tennis. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, so impressed by what I have seen from Yelena Ostapenko to start this year. And again, Pavs is a top 35 player. Alexandrova is a top 25 player over these, uh, are right now here to start the year in. Again, Ostapenko just keeps rolling through them. Again, the number she was seven and nine in twenty seventeen against top twenty opponents. Nine and nine over her last fifty-two weeks against the top twenty. Again, eight quarterfinals to nine, two titles in twenty seventeen versus the three she has over her last fifty-two weeks. And again, what a remarkable run for her to start twenty twenty. Four in particular, you look for Ostapenko now here to start the year again. A resounding 13 and two overall. Those two losses, of course, both to Victoria Azarenka. You know that said, outside of. Ostapenko, good week for ECAT, who now made her third final over the last 52 weeks and her third final actually over the last six months as well. And with this result, you look for Ekaterina Alexandrova. She's sitting at 18 in the live rankings. That's two off her career high, turns 30 years old later this season, right where you want to be. You get to control your schedule, play what you want to play and be seated at most of the events as well. So again, good run for ECAT. I thought. God, was she bowled down the stretch of her three set. It was such a brilliant 5-7, 7-6, 7-6 win for Ekaterina Alexandrova. Three hours, six minutes in the semifinals over Vekic. Vekic, get, I love the little Vekic hitch in her forehand that allows her to get outside the ball and generate cross-court angle that maybe you just wouldn't expect for someone who is a little bit live dri- line-drive centric when she's at her best. And yet, she got, he got stretched early. It's just... You know, the first serve kind of abandoned Vekic down the home stretch of that match. And again, it was a credit to Alexandrova, stayed so aggressive on the return of serve, was able to find a little bit more plus one success. Big final run for ECAT. Good, though, run for Vekic. She needed it to keep herself in that top 32 seeded conversation. And obviously, for Pavs, one of the rising stars we've had thus far. Of the year, she's back up to number 32 in the rankings. And When I say rising stars, obviously, this is a player who's made a slam final. This is a player who's been ranked as high as 11 in the world. But, I mean, ascension in terms of ranking this player who was outside the top 75 as recently as January 1st is now back inside the top 32. You jump 40 spots in five weeks, you're doing something right. Pavlachenkova is certainly going to be feeling good about her semifinal appearance. And then, I know I already talked about it earlier this week, but Potapova, Burrell, Mertens, Barrage you'll always take an early season quarterfinal. You rack up enough of them throughout the year. All of a sudden, you find yourself as a top 15 player in the world. Maybe, just maybe going to play the elite trophy or, God willing, if the quarterfinals comes at the right places, you send Kasichina, Kuter Matova your way into a tour finals berth as well. So that's what went down at the 500 level in Linz. Again, Yelena Ostapenko, second title of the year. First time she's won multiple titles in a single season since that breakout twenty seventeen campaign. The other tour level event on the women's side of things came in Joaquin, featured a maiden championship. Uh, maiden champion, excuse me, as 19-year-old Diana Schneider, Lady Die or Die Schneider, We call her both here on this show. You know what else we call her? A tremendous power tennis player. I mean the lefty, one of six teenagers we have in the top one hundred right now. Oh my goodness did she just blitz through Julin in the deciding set of it was ultimately a 632661 win for Schneider and Julin's hesitancy to hit at the Diana Schneider forehand in any sort of moment just speaks to what sort of the weapon the lefty has on that wing. And she can drive it line. I think she can find it short angle to yank you wide to then beat you down the spot line. I thought the fact that, you know, again, if Julen was very adamant, I'm not hitting to your forehand wing unless absolutely forced to. And Schneider said, okay, I'm going to beat you with my backhand. Then I'm going to drive backhand line. I'm going to drive backhand cross. I'm going to open up all these opportunities for myself. She still didn't serve her best. You know, again, made only 54% of her first serves, and yet – Again, the aggression from the baseline. She was just swinging so freely. As Jeff Sackman pointed out in his exceptional piece, a piece you should all go read, of course, on TennisAbstract.com. If you're not already reading his heavy topspin blog, you are just missing out as a tennis fan. But again, in the third set, the forehand was just untouchable for Diana Schneider. And it's just a level of power tennis that explain why she's one of just Six teenagers we have right now in the top 100, and that list is a special list. Goff, Slam champion. Now, just beat EGAT in Australia. Andreeva has made the second week of a Slam multiple times by age 16. Ashlyn Krueger's won a title at the tour level. She's still 19. Dyshny just won her first title at the tour level. She's 19. And then the last teenager, of course, is Brenda Fruvertova, who's still just 16 years old. You've got, by the way, the other Andreeva Fruvertova halves, Linda, Erica, respectively, uh, just outside the top 100, inside the top 125. Sarah Balick, Alina Kornieva, other teenagers knocking on the door. But Daishinae belongs on that list. Again, the weapons she possesses, the strength, the mindset. I happen to know a little bit about her work ethic as well. I just am very certain she is going to hit her ceiling. She's determined to do so, and again... Since leaving college in May, Diana Schneider now has made the quarterfinals of four different tour-level events. She's made the finals of two of them, and now her first tour-level title. Back into the top 100, back up to number 73 in the live rankings following her run. Again, wins over Julin Lin and Wang Xinyu. By the way, she beats the top three seeds in this event. She knocked out top seed Magda Lynette in round number one. A victory, obviously, over second seeded Julin Lin in the final, and then that one Went over third-seeded Wang Shinyu in the semis. Jeff talks about it in the blog. I'm not going to step on it. He lists out just how many times that has happened. I will say it's more frequent than you think. So be sure to go read the Heavy Topspin Spin blog over at Tennis Abstract to learn more. And then there are a bunch of stats I can point to that point out how exceptional that Schneider forehand is. Again, I don't want to step on his piece. I'd be doing so just if I listed them here on this podcast. But the weapons were unequivocal. And it was a display of power tennis, by the way. I really liked what I saw from Ju Lin. And honestly, if you're the 30-year-old, she was defending the title last week. You made finals. That's a pretty good run for someone defending her first tour-level title to say, OK, I still made it back to the finals of this event. And I will also point out the slow, high-bouncing nature of these Wahine courts, they were always going to play well for Schneider. But credit to Ju Lin into the final. Wang Yafan, Wang Xinyu both, again, uh, continuing their strong starts to 2024. But shout out to Dai Schnei. I mean, again, what an impressive run. First tour-level title back into the top 100. And, you know, again, from February to May, yeah, there were a few pro events mixed in, but pretty free for her in terms of points to defend, most of what she gains will be exactly that, free gains on her ranking. So top 50 runway definitely exists for the 19-year-old over these next three months. As, by the way, we transition to her best surface. Clay courts is where the foundation of her pro success was built upon. I do not expect that to change. Uh, here in the 2024 season. She's your winner. Uh, again, shout out to Ju Lin. A shout out to Wang Xinyu as well. I know I highlighted her a bunch to end last season, but you look for the 22-year-old from China now. She's now made the semifinals of two different uh, tour-level events. Uh, excuse me, semifinals of two different tour-level events, but quarterfinals or further of three different tour-level events now over the course of these last four months on the hard courts. So I just think her weapons really tough to deal with. On this surface, but definitely when you can get her stretch, she gets a little slap happy in those corners and the ball starts to sail on her. That's what Schneider did so well. Outdid her, uh, Schneider, excuse me, that, uh, for Wang Xinyu. Yeah, it's what Schneider did so well in the semifinals, but... Again, I'm keeping an eye on the 22-year-old. She belongs in the top 50 conversation with this run uh, to the semifinals. She is back up to number 41 in the live ranking. So that's all your tour-level action on the women's side. By the way, tomorrow uh, on the show, I am going to lead a little bit of a tease here. I said I'm going to start doing this. I wasn't prepared statistic-wise. Give me the rest of Monday to be properly prepared, but – I am going to offer you my top eight players right now in tennis. What is my snapshot of who the best in the world are at any uh, at the start of this month? Again, that's a segment I want to start doing at the start of every month for all of you tennis fans. So top eight's coming tomorrow. Uh, spoiler alert, is going to be in that A Second spoiler alert, despite the title and my positive outlook for Diana Schneider's future. I do not think Daishnai is going to crack that top eight, but be on the lookout for that to start tomorrow's podcast. That said, to wrap today's show, let's talk about the ATP action we saw in Montpellier. For the first time in tour-level history, a player wins a title after dropping the first set in every match he played. Of course, that person is the man with whom volatility is his calling card. Of course, I'm referring to uh, 26-year-old Sasha Bublik, who, in winning the title in Montpellier, captures his fourth tour-level title of his career. It's his third in the last six and a half months of play. And by the way, with this result, Sasha Bublik now uh, up to a— resounding 23 in the live rankings. That ties his career high. I said this on Twitter over the course of the weekend. I will continue to reiterate this point. What if this is the first season where Sasha Bublik is consistent? from start to finish. Bublik right now 7-2. and two. He's never finished more than six matches over 500 in any given year. Was 35-30 and 30 in 2021, 33-27 in 2022, 24-28 last year. Now 7-2 and two overall to start the season. Has made semifinals or further in two of the three events he played. Of course, sandwiched in between a first-round loss to submit Nagal to just keep everyone off the scent of hey don't don't think i'm getting too consistent anytime too soon but over his last 52 weeks for what it's worth he's now 35 and 26 overall he's made the quarterfinals of seven different events uh five of them at the tour level he's made five different tour level quarterfinals as well so he's 5 to 0 in the five quarterfinals that he's made over the tour levels over these last 52 weeks and again Three titles uh, out of those five quarterfinal appearances as well. I was extraordinarily impressed by what I saw by Bublik because it wasn't just a serving clinic for a guy who obviously that's the calling card, right? You think of Bublik, you think of the first serve, the willingness to serve and volley, the drop shots, the spontaneity of his plus one game. That's not why he won the title this week. He won the title because he grinded down Borna Church in the final because he grinded down FAA in the semis, grinded down Shevchenko in the quarters, and then while grinding those players down, also had this massive serve, this massive plus-one weapon for him to lean upon as well to make life a little bit easier for himself. I was extraordinarily impressed, again, by the steadiness of, of Sasha Bublik, who's a good mover for a guy that size, who can play the Daniil Medvedev. Let's go 12 feet behind the baseline. And I'm just going to, with depth and solid pace, get this return back in play and then lull you to sleep before I sneak a drop shot in front of you or slap a forehand winner by you, use my length and wingspan to move forward to the net. Sasha Bublik has always been able to do all the things on a tennis court. He just has always struggled to put the pieces together consistently. Well, sure as hell put them together this week in Montpellier. And again, nine matches over five hundred over a 52-week stretch. That's the best stretch of his career. And we've seen that over his last 52 weeks now during this stretch. By the way, he's holding serve 81% of the time, which seems crazy. But then, of course, you realize, where does that number come from? Well, it's because of how high his double-fault percentage can be. And again, how low that first-serve percentage can be, living under 60% over the last 52 weeks this week, again, Bublik, was he exceptional behind the first serve? No, he was under 60% in, uh, in two of his four matches and under 63%. In all of his matches, by the way, the reason I bring up that 63% number, the average first serve percentage of a top 50 player right now, 62.8%. Bublik was below that in every one of his matches he played. It wasn't the first serve that allowed him to flip these matches. It was the steadiness, the consistency, the totality of things that he did He has always been an immensely skilled player. He's starting to be more disciplined in incorporating those skills into the course of his matches, or at least certainly was this week. And again, three top 50 wins. Chorich, FAA, Shevchenko, and a win over an always dangerous Denis Shapovalov. What does a consistent Bublik season look like in 2024? Does it propel him to a place where he's top 15 in the world, top 20? I mean, he's already knocking on the door at 23, career high. I don't know. like, Because again, sandwiched in between two runs. I thought he looked really good in Adelaide. Wins over Evans and Musetti to get to the semis there before tight loss to Draper. Obviously looked excellent on the way to the title this week in Montpellier. Sandwiched in between, he lost first round in straight sets to Samit Nagal, who is currently now up to 121 in the world. But... That's a career high for Nagal, the 26-year-old. Like a guy who has never been a top 100 player beat Bublik in straight sets in round number one in Australia. Where does Bublik go from here? It's like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. Bublik now, though, 10 career tour level finals, four career tour level titles, and again, three of those four coming in the last six months. He is your champion in Montpellier. Good week for Borda as well. I know he got the retirement victory from Holger Runa 6-3-4-1 after Runa was clearly struggling on the serve. And I know he got booed leaving the court. I didn't like that because if you've watched Holger Runa play, you could just tell his serving motion was not right throughout the course of that match. And you knew what direction it was heading. So you might as well pull the ripcord at that point, prevent any further damage. But man, sometimes I watch Torch play. And again, you watch his backhand, how fluid he is how condensed that backswing is, how well he can move in and out of that corner. And you're reminded of why he was such a successful junior, why he was such a promising prospect early in his career. And yet, sometimes there's a mechanical nature to his game, his grunt, his movement, where I just like, I can feel the totality of the injuries he's racked up over the year piling up and how he's grunting and just, again, the violence of every swing. And yet, again, when it's on, Boy, is that ball heavy and difficult to deal with in the totality of the physicality he throws at you. Good week for Chorch. Makes the final here in Montpellier. His first tour-level final since Cincinnati. Of course, he made the final last week at a challenger as well. And as such, Borna Chorch now uh, currently back up in the rankings, sitting at number 31. Good spot to be with the Sunshine Swing approaching. I thought it was a good week for Felix as well. Again, wins over Arthur Cazo, Harold Mayotte before a tight three-set loss to Bublik. Had his chances in the Bublik match. They trade breaks, I believe, early in that third set. But again, Bublik comes up with a really good pass and Felix misses a four. like. It was two loose points to get Felix broken that second time after he originally broke back in that deciding set that allowed Bublik to prevail, but... Again, you look for Felix now in terms of last 52 weeks. I know it's 23 and 20 overall, but you look since the start of Tokyo. We'll go even shorter term than that since he made that first Quarterfinal in Tokyo, which was his first quarterfinal since Lyon all the way back in May. So since the start of Tokyo uh, in mid-August, you look for Felix Auger-Aliassime. He's now twelve and five overall. Uh, he's made the quarterfinals or further in three of those five events. Uh, three of the six events that he's played. Obviously the title in Basel, but you know, third round Australian Open lost to Medvedev. Semifinals Montpellier, Pelier lost to eventual champion Bublik steadying the course, dare I say, for Felix after the weird loss to Altmaier to start the season. So I liked what I saw from Felix. Again, Holger injured, so I'm throwing that match out for him in terms of the matchup with Chorich, but really liked what I saw from Chorich as well, and Again, with that said, that's your look at what was a really fun championship weekend in the pro tennis world. Now, if you want to hear more about what happened at the challenger level, I do implore all of you listeners, go check out Damian Koost, who hosts a challenger-centric podcast every Monday over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, tomorrow on this show, we'll get into a busy week in the pro tennis world. I know I didn't talk about Davis Cup, but... I apologize, I haven't had time to follow that. I have already had time to start tracking WTA Abu Dhabi, WTA Cluj napoka ATP Dallas, Marseille, Cordoba. We've got five tour-level events, 125K for the women's as well as Plenty of challengers for the men as well. A lot to preview. We'll get into all of that tomorrow where I will also, of course, offer my top eight players as we enter the month of February in both the men's and women's game. Of course, the reason we're able to have all of this content for all of you listeners is because of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who, as always, has a of an editing job to do day in, day out. A shout out to him. A shout out as well to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point, -point tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR1540 all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, though, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crank Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.